So uh, we're very fortunate today to have as our speaker, Richard Hartnett. Richard is someone I've known for a very long time. I met him in 1965 when we attended a small high school together. Later, we discovered that we both moved to California and we renewed our friendship. He has been a member of the High Watch since 1975 and a mentor since 1983. He teaches for the Prosperos as often as he can. And he is currently the publisher of four books that he's written. He's written and published these four books, Call of the Soul, The Old New Gods, The Evolutionary Tarot, and The Not-So-Minor Arcana. And um, as we speak, he is uh, he's working on, he's writing the, a, a new book that's going to be called Return to Paradise. His talk today is entitled Revisiting Cosmic Attention Therapy. So let's welcome Richard. Thank you, Ben. Uh, by the way, I, I just want to share with everyone that uh, when I went to visit Ben on that Sunday, um, actually what happened is we talked on the phone and he invited me over for breakfast on a Sunday. So I went down to his place and had breakfast. And as we were, we were having breakfast, Prospero students were coming in and out of his apartment. And so it was quite a, I think he was in the zoo at that point. That was a That's famous true. building that was full of Prospero students. <laughs> and, um, somewhere in the middle of the meal, he says, well, as long as you're here, you know, maybe we could go to this meeting where all these other people are from. So a classic sly man moment <laughs> got me to go to the Sunday meeting. And at that meeting, it was announced that it was Heather Williams's birthday that day. Ah. And so we went to Heather Williams's birthday party. And then we actually went out to, uh, a nightclub and went dancing on Sunset Boulevard. So I ended up spending the whole day with him and everybody else and uh, just blew my mind. You know, that day I remember getting in the car, putting my keys in the ignition and saying to myself, my life is never going to be the same. <laughs> and it hasn't been. It was a real significant turning point in my life. Another really significant turning point in my life was when I took cosmic attention therapy class. I remember very clearly that uh, my first class was translation. And those of you who are students of translation know how powerful that class can be and how profound it can be in the sense of, um, you know, knowing that there's something you can do to deal with some of your challenges. Um, but when I took cosmic intention therapy, I, I really had the sense of that things finally made sense to me. Things that I had struggled with my whole life were starting to come together. Uh, but even though it was a very just the very beginning of my journey, it was, still was a significant moment. So class has always been very special to me. And I've been, I'm working very hard uh, getting ready to teach that class sometime in the fall. And um, part of um, why I wanted to teach that class is there's been so much stuff that has come out that I think really validates uh, the wisdom of this class that Thane had developed all those years ago. So let's talk today a little bit about what is the cosmic intention. 
what does that mean? Well, the cosmic means, or cosmos, if you will, the idea is that there is, that it isn't just a random, um, the universe isn't just a random chance event, that there's actually some something going on. There is an intention in the universe, and that if there is an intention, which I believe there is, and I think Thane believed there was, and I think those of us who are students in the Prosperous recognize that there is an intention, that if there is an intention, then I think one of the most significant things that we can do uh, is to align ourselves with that intention. Because if we're out of alignment with that intention, I think we're sort of like going against the grain of life and that could make things very difficult, which is why therapy might be in order. Um, so when we talk about the cosmic intention, that's a really challenging topic because we're, we're trying to talk about everything. We're trying to talk about the entire cosmos. And uh, that's a pretty big subject. And how do, you, how do you talk about that? How do you take everything into consideration? Because I think as a student of translation, one of the things you get is nothing can be left out. Everything has to somehow fit within the totality of what is so in the universe. And, and therefore we have to somehow or another integrate that as well. And I think talking about the cosmic intention is almost as challenging as trying to explain to somebody what the prosperous is. <laughs> well, one of the things that we do in the prosperous is we do talk about the nature of the universe. I remember when I used to do Sunday meetings, I used to say that we were a religio educational organization but we were not a religion. I think it would have been more appropriate to say that we were a spiritual educational organization. Uh, and I'll explain a little bit more about what I mean by that later. Because you see, one of the things that I've, I've been looking at is what's the difference um, between a spirit and religion. And one of the things that I see is that when religion has their take on the cosmic intention, they have their doctrine, if, they, if you will, and they, they have a very specific story about what's going on. And that's all well and good. Um, and part of what that story usually includes in religion is that the universe is run by some sort of all-powerful being. And most often that being is sort of described as being somewhat anthropomorphic, which means somewhat somewhat human-like, uh, like a figure, like a man is usually the way it's talked about. And you sort of think of like this guy sitting on a throne, sort of passing judgment over us or whatever. And that's the way they see it. That's their doctrine. That's the way they describe it in their, in their lore. And they have a description of how the universe came to be. And they have a description about what our relationship is with that creative force. And one of the major points that they advocate is that the universe is subjective. And what I mean by that is through the proper prayers or supplications or incantations or ritual sacrifice, or maybe even just good behavior, that you can actually influence the universe. That's what it means to be subjective. But that raises some interesting questions like why do bad things happen to good people? Or on the other hand, you could, you could also ask the question, why do things work for bad people? 
that whole idea of being able to influence just doesn't have quite the credibility that it once did. Now, the other prevailing viewpoint about the way to look at the cosmos is that the position that science has taken. Uh, science has for a long time basically said that the universe operates according to law and principle, and that what we need to do is just to figure out what those laws and principles are, and then we can be in alignment with the way uh, the universe runs. We can, we can be in, in order. Um, we can align ourselves to that order. And so if this religion is saying the universe is subjective, then what science would say is that the universe is not subjective, it's objective, it's totally objective. Things only happen according to law and principle and that that law and principle is not something you can change uh, or bend because if it's true, if it's a law, it's a principle, it, that's, it, it is what it is. And if you break the law, you suffer consequences. So which is it? Could, could it be that the universe is totally objective or could it be that the universe is subjective? I think that's a very important question. And I think cosmic contention sort of helps us to look at that question and give it some serious consideration. Now, what I would say as a student of translation is that when you say truth is all there is, you are basically saying there is but one universe. And somehow within a oneness universe, both the ideas of religion and science have to be integrated into a oneness philosophy or a oneness viewpoint. Somehow they all fit together. So part of my work in um, looking at cosmic intention therapy was I decided to go out and read some books uh, on science and religion. So if you look right here, this is my shelf. That shelf is loaded with books that are either scientific or spiritual or religious, I should say. And I think if you're gonna look at anything, you need to look at both sides of the equation. You need to look at both sides of the argument. And there are some books in there that, you know, I, I don't agree with their philosophy, but I think it's important to look at what they had to say. And there are some other books that I found to be incredibly valuable even though I would not have thought of them as being valuable in terms of dealing with this topic. Um, and then there's some, you know, obviously some great scientific books. Somehow all this stuff fits together. Everything, I, what I would say is this, everything happens in the universe according to law and principle, um, but there is room for the miraculous. And we'll talk about how that could be. Science would say that there is no creative force in the universe, that the universe is strictly the product of chance, incur uh, chance occurrences. In other words, given enough time and enough uh, different opportunities, eventually the universe will produce life as we know it. Sort of like the, maybe you've heard this idea that if you sat some monkeys down at, at some typewriters, that eventually they would be able to type out the complete works of William Shakespeare given enough time. Well, there is some truth in that. I mean, I suppose it is possible. And you could actually figure this out from a statistical point of view. And somebody's actually done this. Well, here's the problem. The problem is there's this thing that happened in the last century where more and more scientific evidence started pointing, pointing towards that the universe 
was not eternal, that the universe actually came into existence about 13.7 billion years ago uh, because of this event called the Big Bang. Well, if you take those 13.7 billion years and you thought about how long that is, statistically, you could figure out that no, monkeys could not type Shakespeare uh, within, within that time frame. But actually, more to the point, that all the things that were necessary for life to occur on this planet uh, could not happen. Now, I want to share with you something. Uh, hopefully, you'll be able to read it. And this actually comes from a book called The Creator in the Cosmos, which is a religious book, but I found a lot of really great material in it. And so maybe you can look at this or follow along with this. You can't read it. Don't worry about it too much. Um, basically, what this, this, what this guy did is he went through and he looked at all the different parameters that were necessary for the universe as it is today to come into existence. So let me give you an example here. So he says, um, more than two dozen parameters for the universe must have values falling within the narrowly, narrowly defined ranges for physical life or any other conceivable kind of life to exist. For instance, there has to be a strong nuclear force constant. If the nuclear force was larger, there would be no creation of hydrogen atoms, which are the nuclei and essentially that are nuclei that are essential for life uh, to happen. If, if you don't have that, life would be too unstable. If there was a smaller amount, then no elements other than hydrogen could come into existence. And all of the different elements, particularly carbon, are necessary for life to occur. So that's one of the variables. Second one, weak nuclear force constant. If the weak nuclear force was uh, larger, too much hydrogen would be converted to helium in the Big Bang, hence too much heavy element material made by star burning um, and no expulsion of heavy elements from stars. If the nuclear force was smaller, too much helium product uh, from the Big Bang, hangs, hence too little heavy element material made by star burning, no expulsion of heavy elements for, from stars. This is all very, you know, this guy's a scientist as well as being a very spiritual person. And he's got like, essentially, uh, you can see here, there's 19 variables on this. And I think there's actually more. Uh, so what he's saying is that for life to happen, the, the window of opportunity is very, very, very narrow. Um, so what that sort of points to is there has to be some sort of cosmic energy, some sort of cosmic intention that creates the universe in such a way that life could actually emerge. So we know at the very least that there's an intention for life to have emerged. So I'm gonna stop this share. All right. So, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is what this is part of what science has done for us is, is, is talk to us about all the different things that are necessary for life to come about. And um, the, uh, you know, then you look at the history of the universe from the Big Bang forward and you realize that everything has happened within those 13.7 billion years. There's many, and uh, 
that, that there's lots of scientific evidence that point to the fact that evolution is a reality, that evolution is undeniable. We know that religion and science have had conflict about this in the past and that uh, the evidence just became overwhelming and uh, for, for the fact that evolution was a true thing, uh, which sort of challenged uh, the way religion talked about or looked at things. Now you can easily resolve that conflict if you don't look at religious writings as being literal. If you look at them as metaphorical, then actually what you find out is that religion and science are actually saying the same thing, but most of the time they don't want to admit that to each other. And we know that one of the things that's happened in the last uh, few years is that evolution is being taught in schools and creationist people, uh, religious fundamentalists, felt like that was not a good thing, that they were, they felt like there should be equal opportunity that schools should teach evolution, but they should also teach creationism. Well, that argument's a little strange because there's not a lot of evidence that supports creationism. In fact, most of the evidence contradicts creationism from a literal point of view. That would be almost like requiring schools to not only teach that the globe was round, but to actually give equal, equal time to those people that believe the earth is flat. Uh, that's just, you know, sort of a pointless exercise. Well, so the Big Bang actually, you know, brought science a lot of things. Uh, but one of the things that it created for science was a problem. And that was that things happened at a much greater rate than random occurrences would take into account. Um, there has to be something going on other than just randomness. There had to be some sort of cosmic force guiding things along. Um, but the truth of the matter is when you start to look into this thing, you start to see, yes, that life has moved in a, or the universe has moved in a very consistent direction. And what that direction is, is, is the universe has moved towards consciousness. That is what the universe has been up to. When you look at the story of evolution, you look at the sequence of how things occurred. Um, what we know about the Big Bang is that the first thing that happened was an explosion of light. And what do we know about light? We know that light is not material. It's, it doesn't have uh, weight. Uh, it is essentially pure energy. Well, that was the first thing to occur. And when they call it a Big Bang, what they said basically was from a point smaller than you can imagine, the universe literally exploded that light out into, ex into existence. That the evidence is before the explosion of the Big Bang, there essentially was no universe. There was nothing. What you could look at it and say that there was only the laws and principles that existed in the heavens, in the absolute or in the abstract, if you will. And why do we know that? Because universal laws are truly that. They are truly universal. They are always so in all places, at all times, under all circumstances. We've never found universal law to be um, true in some places and not in others. That's why they're called universal. Do we find that there are different levels of order, but everything in the universe operates according to law and principle? So anyway, light happens. And then after light, what seems to have occurred is eventually what the subatomic started to emerge out of light. Now, 
one thing we could say is that if the universe started as a point smaller than you can imagine, then the next thing, the next level of uh, order was the subatomic. One way to say this would be these are different levels of order or different kingdoms, if you will. And each of these kingdoms are truly distinct from its predecessor. So one thing you can get from this is that light actually had to happen before the subatomic could come into expression because the subatomic is, it appears to be uh, nothing more than light configured into different relationships. You know, neutrons uh, and protons and electrons all formulating into a different kind of uh, relationship with each other. And then there's quarks, which represent forces. All of those things that happen on the subatomic make possible for the next kingdom to emerge. And that's the atomic kingdom. And this is where you, you might say that this is where something actually started to manifest. You could say something that had a specific identity. You know, we have this thing called the periodic table, which represents all these different forms that we call atoms. And the atoms are different from each other according to the how many electron proton pairings there are. And that uh, each of these is distinct. So, the subatomic merges, and the first thing that happens is on the subatomic is hydrogen. And as I was saying earlier, hydrogen is absolutely necessary for anything to come into form. So hydrogen happens, and then you know there's things are sort of blipping in and out of existence, and then eventually hydrogen starts to formulate, uh, or what the universe does is it starts to make another kind of atom, which is called helium. And then, and then hydrogen and heliums, they start to make these suns. And in the suns, what happens is all the other elements that we know, like uh, metals and things of that sort, get, literally get cooked in the sun. And then, of course, things explode out. We get the formation of galaxies. We get the formation of solar systems. And eventually, what happens is we, you know, you could say that out of all of the different types of atoms, we start to see molecules emerge. Now, molecules are very different from atoms. Molecules essentially is the only thing that you see. You don't see the atomic kingdom. You don't see the plant kingdom even. If you think about it, what you're really looking at are molecules. So molecules are the real substance of life and atoms made molecules possible, just as subatomic particles made atoms possible just as light made some atomic particles possible. So what you see is that each kingdom goes through a process of exploration. And then as that exploration sort of comes to a culmination point, something new, something unpredictable emerges out of that kingdom and creates the next kingdom. So we have molecules and what are molecules? Molecules are the joining together of atoms by different kinds of bonds. And mo molecules are innate. They're not alive. They're, they're pretty much fixed. Uh, like Think of like a rock or something like that. But that kingdom went through a lot of exploration over many, many years. And we'll, I'll talk about this more in the uh, cosmic attention therapy class. Uh, but eventually what happens is molecules came into the, some sort of strange relationship where it became possible 
We're not sure exactly how, maybe because of an electrical charge from a lightning bolt or something, but then out of the molecular kingdom, we had the emergence of life. Sim simple cell life, but nonetheless, life emerged. And what was, how was life different from molecules? Well, life has awareness. Now, not the kind of awareness that we have, you know, like we are aware that we are aware, or we're aware of the environment. Well, we are aware of our environment, but in a way, plants also are aware of their environment. They respond to stimulus. Uh, a, a plant will um, grow leaves uh, and point those leaves up towards the sun so that it can draw the energy of the sun down and engage in a process of photosynthesis. Uh, plants interact with the earth. They send their roots down into the soil to get water and also to take nutrients out of the uh, soil. So what's really different is, if you think about it, plants really are exercising some kind of awareness of its environment. Now, it doesn't know that it's doing that. I wouldn't say it knows it in the way we know, but nonetheless, that is what's going on. It is aware of its environment. It is life and it's reactive to the environment. But plants are pretty much fixed in place. So then we have this long period of time in, in, you know, when we look at the history of the planet, we look at the history of plants on this planet, what do we know is that there, the plants explored all the different kinds of possibilities. It, plants started to specialize different types of cells so that different types of plant life could emerge, uh, making trees possible, making sponges possible, doing all of these different things. And plants are, plants went through this incredible exploration. And then eventually what started to happen is out of plant life or sort of along this, you know, the whole thing about life, life sort of branched off in a new direction and that was animals. And what animals had that was different than plants is that animals had mobility. And that sort of changed the game. So again, if you think about these different kingdoms, what you start to see is that things expanded from a point so incredibly small all the way up to where animals are, where they actually literally were able to roam their environment, where a plant just pretty much knows a small area, a molecule, it's, it's even smaller, and atoms even smaller than that. So we see an expansion into the universe. We see something where the, this seems to be part of what the cosmic intention is, is that the universe is expanding itself out into itself. The universe is getting to know itself through this process of expansion. Uh, now, animals, I said, were very different because uh, they had mobility, but also many other things started to happen with animals. The emergence of vision, the emergence of hearing. Um, you know, one of the things that you, you hear a lot about or people bring up a lot about is like, well, how come there's so much cruelty in the universe? You know, if there really was a creative force or a, a God, if you will, how, could there, how can there be this toleration for so much cruelty? Well, if you look at the animal kingdom, you know, which is what people are talking about is that the lions come along and they eat the gazelles or whatever. The truth of the matter is, if you look at that carefully, what you see is that 
there's a sort of a contest going on between these two species. And that every day the gazelles get away from the lion, except for that one day they finally don't get away. And that there's an, that, that whole process of the lion figuring out how to strategize its behavior in order to get that meat that it needs, the gazelle, and the gazelle figuring out how to avoid the lion, that actually contributes to the development of consciousness. Each of them are becoming more sophisticated in their awareness of their world. They're developing higher forms of senses. They're, you know, developing heightened hearing or heightened vision, or uh, I think to some extent, uh, working on developing their intuition or just their sensing of the environment. So you, you definitely start to see, when you, if you think about what I've been talking about, there is this process. There's this process of the evolution of consciousness. Animals are more conscious than plants. Plants are more conscious than molecules. And we are, humans are animals. We, we don't, may not like to admit that to ourselves, but the truth of the matter is we are animals, but we are also the emergent kingdom beyond animals. Something happened. Uh, another moment of an unpredictable good emerging out of the animal kingdom. And what is it that we are that is different than animals? Well, some people say, well, it's the fact that we are tool makers. No, and there are animals that make tools. Uh, the anteater will actually grab a stick and stick it down the hole of a giant ant farm and the ants will crawl up onto the stick and then he pulls the stick out and he eats the ants off the, off the stick or uh, river otters will use rocks to break open clamshells. Uh, there are other examples of animals actually making tools. So that's not the thing that makes us different from animals. Uh, well, some people say, well, we have emotions. Well, if you've ever owned an animal, you know animals have emotions. So that doesn't qualify either. Um, is it the fact that we're conscious of our environment? Well, no, I think animals are very conscious of their environment. That gazelle is definitely looking for where that lion is so that it can get through another day. So what is it that really makes us different? Why are we the next kingdom? What is it that is emerging about us? Well, what it is, is that we are consciousness, conscious of consciousness. How many times have we heard this from Thane? We are consciousness, conscious of consciousness. And what makes that, what, wh how that empowers us is that we have the capacity to reflect on the past, to make, to, to learn from our experiences, to learn from our mistakes, to be conscious about what our, our mistakes are, to learn through the events that have occurred. But we also have the ability to, uh, imagine a future to, you know, imagine, hey, you know what, it's Sunday. Maybe I'll go to the Prospero Sunday meeting and see what Hartman has to say today. You know, you, you, you know, how did that happen? You thought it first. You didn't just do it. You had that thought in your mind and you put your life in, in play in such a way that you actually could, uh, you know, actually be here today. If you hadn't thought about it, it wouldn't have happened. So that's the thing that really makes us different is that we are consciousness, conscious of consciousness. Now, what is our responsibility? 
what is what is the cosmic intention? The cosmic intention has been, as the evidence seems to indicate, the evolution of consciousness. Then, what is the most important thing that we can do as students in the Prosperos? And that is to practice consciousness. Now, we all know that Thing used to say, or actually before him, Gurdjieff used to say that most people are asleep. Well, what does it mean to be asleep? It means you're not really paying attention. You're just sort of reacting, sort of like the, you know, the gazelle or the tiger or the lion. You're just sort of reacting to your environment. You're not using that capacity that you have that allows you to anticipate the past or anticipate the future based upon lessons that you've had in the past. That the most important thing that we can do is to practice consciousness as opposed to being asleep. Now we can be, you know, conscious in the sense that we're not laying in bed with our eyes closed, going into a different world, but to be asleep means we're not really paying attention to what's going on around us, what we're doing, how, you know, how things are affected. That's why, you know, I think Buddhism is uh, really, we're onto something when they said before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Well, what does that say? What does that mean? It means to be conscious, to be present, to be mindful. Uh, it's really easy to get caught up in your chores and not pay attention to what you're doing. And when you do that, that's when things happen. You drop the dish uh, or you miss the spot on the floor that you're mopping or whatever. You so you have to learn to be conscious of chopping the wood and carrying water. And if you could practice that discipline as the Buddhists do of really being mindful, being your mind being full of that consciousness, being present and paying attention to what's going on around you, that if you could really do that, I think that is what produces enlightenment. Um, in the next talk that I'm going to do for the Sunday meeting, I'm going to talk a little bit about the tarot cards and how that relates to uh, the teachings of the Prosperos. And one of the uh, ideas is uh, in the, the tarot, is you have this card called the sun card. And what the sun card represents is the moment in which we emerge out of the darkness. What does it mean to be in the dark? It means to not see things clearly, to not understand what's going on around you. When you emerge out of the darkness into the light, you see the world as it really is. You see, you discover maybe things that you didn't know was, that were there, but they were there all along. That's enlightenment. Enlightenment is not a, a, something that happens once. It can happen many, many times in our lives. In fact, those of us who practice RHS in translation will tell you that enlightenment is an event that often occurs as a result of the work that we do with um, RHS in translation. So this is what this is what our destiny is. Our destiny is to be conscious beings. And that is the therapy. Because if we can recognize that this is our the most important thing to do, because really what I'm talking about is becoming a conscious participant in the evolutionary process. That when you become conscious, you're actually aligning yourself with the cosmic intention and you can do the work of RHS and translation, not just in terms of personal problem solving, 
but you do it as a spiritual discipline. You do it as a practice to help encourage for you to keep your mind crisp, to keep your mind clear, to keep your mind aware of the fact that you are awareness, aware of awareness. Cosmic intention is a great reason to do translation in RHS. And also, I always like to point this out that if you practice this as a discipline, one of the things that's going to occur is you're going to get very good at it. So that when you actually do have something going on that requires some sort of attention from you, uh, some sort of Christ, personal crisis in your life, you then can uh, utilize those tools much more, much more effectively. So cosmic intention therapy should be your third motivation uh, to practice the disciplines of our school. You know, translation is like you've got that intellectual discipline. RHS, you've got the emotional discipline. The cosmic intention is like, you know, that's, that's a third path for you. Now, one of the things I think is really important about studying and thinking about the cosmic intention is to recognize that in a oneness universe, there, that cosmic intention has to be everywhere, present in everything. You know, um, when we uh, do the work of RHS and translation, sometimes things occur that just feel like they're miraculous. But you have to understand the difference, I think, between the way we use that word and the way other people might use it. I think that in many religions, they sort of are indicating that you literally can bend the universe, that you can twist the universe, uh, the laws and principles of the universe through your, through your supplications or your ritual sacrifices or whatever, that you get to bend the laws or, or principles. But no, we don't, we don't say that. We don't do that. As we say when we do translation in RHS, we don't, we don't translate to heal, alter, or change anything. We do the disciplines in order to change our awareness. Because as we change our awareness, we're changing our worldview. And when we change our worldview, it becomes possible to see things, to experience things that we might otherwise have missed. I, I tell this story a lot uh, in my Tarot practice because um, I get a lot of people come to me with, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what, what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to go. So I say, well, what is it you want to do? I say, well, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I said, what do you love to do? Well, you know, they'll usually come up with some sort of answer. And, then, and I'll say, well, why don't you do that? And they'll say, oh, nobody would ever pay me to do this. And I, so I said, well, let me tell you a story from my life. There was a time when I was working for a bank in downtown Los Angeles, a security bank for those of you who know California. I was a computer operator and I was terrible at my job. I, I, I mean, I could do it. The problem was that I'd be, I'd be working at three o'clock in the morning and I'd be writing poetry or I'd be, I'd be thinking about the cosmic intention. I'd be making notes about the cosmic intention and my machines would jam up and I'd get in trouble with my boss because I wasn't watching what the machines were doing. So I, I just knew because I'd get it together and then I'd fall apart. I'd get it together and fall apart. I knew that, I, that this was the wrong place for me, but I, that was the only skill that I had. I hadn't 
gone to college uh, very much at that point. I didn't, I didn't have any degree in anything. Um, and this is the only thing I, had, I knew was computer stuff because I'd gone to school for that. But I did a translation. And at the end of the translation, what I came up with was in an infinite universe, there are infinite possibilities. And therefore, there has to exist in this universe some job that I could do, that I would be perfectly qualified for, that I would be perfectly suited for, and I would be good at it. And because I would be good at it, somebody would pay me to do it. And I had an absolute sense of conviction that that was true. And I know we say we're not supposed to structure after translation, but on that particular day, I got up, I walked out of my lunch break, out of the break room, walked into my boss's office and said, I'm giving you my two-week notice. He says, what? I said, you know as well as I do, I've not been good at this. And I have to, I have to find something else. This is not it. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I have no idea. I really don't. But I know this isn't it. So he said, all right. So two weeks went by. I left that company. And I wandered in the wilderness for three months. I tried driving a meat delivery truck. I tried being an accountant. I tried selling lawn furniture. I, I tried Shackley. <laughs> did a bunch of other stuff. Um, and, and did, you know, for three months, uh, somehow or another, I managed to squeak by, but on the, after that period of time, one day I walked into Pacific stereo and I, there was all this music equipment and the music was playing. And I was sitting there, I was going, this is it. This is what I'm looking for. So I went into the guy's office, the manager of the company. And I said, uh, I want to come to work for you. <laughs> he says, you, what do you want? I said, well, I, I guess I want to be a salesman. He says, we ever sold anything? I said, well, I used to rent out rooms for my mom when we were at a motel. That's not really selling anything. But he said, well, what do you know about a stereo equipment? I said, I like music. <laughs> he said, well, I don't think I can use you, but go across the street, and talk to my competitor. So I went across the street and I went through the same thing. I got my wrap down a little better the second time around. And the guy gave me a job. And I spent 17 years in consumer electronics. Last job I had, last meaningful job I had, I was a regional sales manager for Techniques Panasonic. That's how I got to Colorado. Because uh, I was working for Panasonic and they offered me this territory. And after 17 years of doing that, I started having that itch again about something. I need to do something else. And then, well, I essentially went through the same process. Um, but I don't, you know, well, I guess I will tell you. I, um, I thought about it and I, I went through the same questioning process. What, what, what do I want to do? I said, well, yeah, I really love the Tarot. So I said, well, maybe I should do this. So I submitted a letter of resignation to my company and told them I was going to go read tarot cards. Well, there were people that laughed at me. I mean, not laugh with me. They laughed at me. They thought I was a big joke. And I had made a resolution in my mind that somehow, some way, I'm going to make this work. And that meant I was willing to do whatever I needed to do in order to succeed. And that meant, you know, if I had to be a carpenter part-time or an electrician's assistant, I did all of that kind of stuff. I was a painter. 
But I read, uh, started reading Tarot professionally and I've done that for 17 years and I, it still is a major source of income for me. But that was only possible because I believed it was possible. I remember after I left that job, um, I was first starting out, there was a couple of women that I worked with that said, well, why don't you read the cards for me? So I left, um, or no, I was driving over to this one woman's house. And as I pulled up, I said, please let this woman pay me for this reading so that I can have dinner tonight. Because I literally did not have any money to buy dinner. So I walked up to the woman's door, knocked on the door. That She opened the door and she said, hey, Rich, would you like to have some dinner before we do the reading? So she fed me and she paid me. That was 1989. I've eaten a lot ever since. But the key thing is that in each of these stories I'm telling you, there was a sense of absolute conviction that I was connected with that cosmic intention, that there was a force or a presence uh, available in the universe and that I could access it. Um, I have a lot of people tell me that they think I should write another book and maybe this will sort of give you another piece of information about the cosmic intention. And that is I have, I have very special relationships with animals. Um, I, I studied Native American spirituality, and one of the things that I learned as a result of being involved with those people was uh, to think of the animals as being different peoples. In fact, that's what they say in Native American tribes. They call, the, they call them the coyote people or the wolf people or the ant people, and they respect them. They think of them as being different, and what the Native Americans would say is that each of these different animals has a different skill that can be very helpful. And if you blend with them or you make a psychic connection with them, that they actually can help you. And I've had experiences along those lines. But the story I wanna share with you is, I was working at the Renaissance Fair here in Colorado and I used to sleep in my van behind the booth where I worked. Yeah, I'd couple, you know, I'd go down there for the weekend, I'd sleep in a sleeping bag. So I was back in my van, waiting for the sun to go down, reading a book. And I hear this truck pull up in front of me and I can't see him because I'm laying down. Uh, and I hear this guy starting to talk and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to harass me for sleeping in my van, you know, because the guy that ran the fair was kind of a stickler about, he didn't want people doing stuff like that. But so I sort of popped up and I see this guy and he's leaning on the dash of his truck or the hood of his truck. And he's got a great big rifle in his hand and he's talking to somebody on a walkie talkie. And I'm like, what the hell? And I turn around, I look directly behind my van up a slope about 20 feet. There's a 400 pound black bear, not black bear, brown bear, grizzly bear, enormous. And what the bear is doing, he's doing this. He's sort of shuffling back and forth. He wants to go down to the garbage dump that's like about maybe 50 feet from where I am at, maybe 50 yards, I don't know, pretty good distance. But he's not sure whether he should do this or not. And I know what's going to happen. This guy is going to shoot this bear. So I turn around, I look at that bear, 
And with every ounce of psychic power I can muster in that moment, I look at that bear and I say, you listen to me right now. Listen to me you, that you are going to get really hurt. You need to get out of here right now. And I swear to God, that bear stopped what he was doing. He looked directly at me and he left. Now you tell me that that's not an indication that the cosmic intention is present everywhere. I don't think that what I did was anything out of the ordinary. I think what was different was that I was open to the cosmic intention that I trusted that the cosmic intention, just like I trusted the cosmic intention when I left the computer job, just like I left the cosmic intention when I left the um, um, electronics job, that we are meant to have a sense of connection because we are necessary. The universe has gone through 17 or 13.7 billion years of evolution in order to create the human race, but it's not done. What's next requires us to do exactly what we're talking about, become conscious of the fact that we are consciousness and to see the unlimited power of consciousness and how that actually can liberate us from all the problems that we have today. We just need to be more conscious. You know, when somebody throws a, 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 a cup from McDonald's out the window of their car with a plastic straw, that's not being conscious, that's being totally unconscious. But what if we stopped and we started to pay attention to all the different things so that we weren't dumping all the plastic in the oceans and making these islands of plastic? Uh, I had that experience personally. I went to Belize a few years ago and I walked around a corner of a cove and I came up to a beach and the beach was loaded with plastic. And I was like, what the heck are these people doing down here? I didn't get it at that time that that was probably trash that America had dumped in the ocean or any other country for that matter, because a lot of countries do that. If we practice conscious, if we're aware, if we recognize that the cosmic intention created the whole universe and we are part of the whole universe and we are connected to the whole universe. And if we allow ourselves to be connected through the process of our teachings, well, who knows what's possible. So I hope you guys will think about possibly joining me when I do my CIT class in the fall. I don't know when, because I'm still working on it, but it, it is going to happen. So I'm going to stop talking. I talked longer than I thought I was going to. Thank you for your attention. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. And especially thank you, Richard. I mean, you gave a, a wonderful taste of what your CIT class, Cosmic Attention Therapy class, is going to be.